Hello and welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kika. A podcast to discuss musical theater pedagogy and to create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators. Feel free to email us at carefullytaughtpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at carefullytaughtpodcast. Well, I am so excited about our guest uh, on this episode, who I have never met in person, but feel like I have a relationship with because I follow her on TikTok. Um, and I, I think she might follow me too. I do. Uh, We're officially <laughs> friends on TikTok. We can nice. message each other back and forth. Nice. Wild. Nice. And we've had a lot of amazing um, different perspectives on Carefully Taught Teaching Musical Theater with Maddie and Kikau, but we have yet to have a two-time Tony Award-winning producer um, on on as a guest on our podcast. I'm so excited to talk about the state of our industry, the state of musical theater education, um, and of course, I should probably say her name because I know it, but I haven't told our listeners yet. Uh, our guest on this episode is Sally K. Holmes, who um, was the producer of many things, including the smash hit production of Little Shop of Horrors that is running off Broadway, and of course the Tony Award winning best musical uh, Town. Uh, Sally Cade, thank you for joining us on Carefully Taught Teaching Musical Theater with Maddie and Kikau. Thank you so much for having me. This is like the reason that TikTok brings me so much joy. Actually getting to connect with people who are like doing things that I'm passionate about and but with a little different lens, I guess. So, um, you know, I, I kind of rattle off some things from your bio, uh, and you have a, a unique journey that is obviously more than just the Tony Awards. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your your journey into uh, being a, a Broadway, off-Broadway uh, producer. Um, that's, that, that's where you are, but how did you get there, and, and what drew you to that world? I think this is actually going to be great for musical theater educators to hear because um, I was in no way, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated from college. And I think uh, a lot of folks are in that same position. I knew that um, I graduated with a degree in theater generalism. So I had a liberal arts degree in theater with a minor in religious studies. Um, and I had no idea <laughs> what I wanted to do with that. And the, the path of least resistance felt like, you know, I was passionate about performing. So I'm going to audition and do the New York hustle and that whole thing quickly realized that performing was not my journey. Well, I should rephrase auditioning was not my journey and <laughs> therefore performing was not my journey. Um, so in the old adage that, that I had heard, you know, if, if you're not getting cast in work you want to do, then make the work you want to do. So I had friends. Um, it was a scenic designer, a lighting designer, a costume designer, myself, and another performer. And I thought I wanted to be a performer at the time. Started a theater company. Um, our first show, there wasn't really a role for me. So I was like, well, I'll do everything else. I'll make sure the contracts are signed. I'll make sure we have butts and seats. I'll make sure, you know, the refrigerator can get up the steps for the set, all of these things. Um, and on opening night, I had this full breakdown. I was like, I can't point to anything on that stage that I owned. And my scenic designer friend was like, she proverbially slapped me in the face uh, and was like, you you are the reason that this exists. You were like the, the communication glue and the artistic glue that allowed for all of us to do our jobs effectively. And I was like, 
oh, <laughs> I think this is what I'm really, really good at. I should probably figure out how, how, like how to officially do it. Um, so I ended up going to grad school at Boston University. Fast forward through a lot of jobs and internships and now I'm here. So great. It's so great. I do. Uh, we do say that to our students a lot, right? If, uh, uh, if you are not seeing the work uh, or getting cast in the work, make the work, be a part of that. And so we are requiring them now to be actors, singers, dancers, uh, producers, um, circus folk, right? I mean, there are, there are so many elements to this. Um, what would you say to someone who is interested in taking a similar path to production, to producing? Um, what, what would steps be for them to take? The first thing I would say is there is no one path. Like there's genuinely every producer that I speak with has a completely different way of finding their way to, to what we do. Um, I think that's actually an access problem, which is why I start, one of the reasons I started talking about what I do on TikTok is because I didn't know that the job of producer existed, which is why I didn't know I wanted it. Um, so if you know you are interested in producing, my first piece of advice is recognize that there's no one path and then find people doing the type of work that you're passionate about and reach out to them. Like all they can do is ignore your email or say, no, I'm busy. Get back to me in a month. Um, I think that's a really important thing for that I wish I had known. Like all, all of us are just humans. We want to connect with people. We want to have, I want to see people succeed doing this thing that I love. So just to follow up on that, like this idea of access, I think a platform like TikTok is amazing. Um, I, I uh, don't create content. Like I like to follow people and kind of swipe through. I, but I, I see how easy it is for people to access each other in that way. Can you tell us like how you got to, to that platform and um, sort of what you think it kind of opens up for you? Oh, for sure. I mean, it totally involves my ex-girlfriend, Catherine Quinn, who is wonderful. Um, and we are still friends. Uh, and we were actually plotting. We were like, should we do like a live together from our individual apartments? Would that break people's brains? Anyway, so she actually got really, really into TikTok. And um, that was surrounding the Bridgerton musical at the time. And she's also a brilliant choreographer and director. So she created some content that really blew up. And then we started having very nerdy conversations about producing theater, industry norms, what we like, what we don't like. And remember, it was in the middle of a pandemic. So everybody was just sitting on their phone and not actually going to the theater. Um, so it felt a little bit like we had a captive audience. Anyway, so uh, Catherine built this following and then I started to kind of build my own and we're, we're having similar conversations. Um, uh, hers from a bit more of an artistic perspective and mine more from a producing perspective. But yeah, that's how I got into it. Uh, and then I just recognized that the long-term change that I want to see in musical theater, in Broadway, in this art form, requires for more transparency at all levels. And I think that within producing, it is one of the most opaque areas of the industry. Um, and 
in the day to day, I get so caught up and like things aren't changing fast enough. This is really frustrating to me that TikTok is a way that I can take an actionable step to do something that I think will have long-term ramifications. So lifting that veil of opacity as it were um, to what I actually do. I love that. Um, I follow Catherine. I didn't, uh, so that's, I'm trying to get her to follow me. I've commented on a number of her (laughs) posts. She hasn't followed me yet. So if you could reach out. Oh my gosh, I'll text her after this. But so, but it it is a really, that's such an interesting um, uh, uh, statement on how small this world is and how TikTok really does. and, And a lot of social media some for good, some for bad, um, you know, can connect us in a way that people are accessible. You know, one of the things that was so interesting, you stitched something that I had posted on TikTok, and then um, I think that's around the time we started following one another, and uh, then I just sent you a message, and you responded, and you're the producer of the Broadway production of a Tony Award-winning musical. Um, that's amazing. That's the world that we live in, and that's that's the good part of social um, you know, the, 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 there's obviously, I, I have said on this podcast several times that I think Facebook is the devil. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of toxicity that happens online, but when it can build communities and bring us together, I think that's, that's really cool. Are, uh, how do you see, um, like how can we as musical theater educators help our students utilize these online tools that were certainly not part of my musical theater BFA. Um, just, you know, we, you, you referenced the Bridgerton musical that led to a, a Grammy award. Um, obviously we know Ratatouille and, and the Ratatouille musical, um, creating content in that way is one thing, but, uh, are, do you have other ideas about how students in particular, we could teach our students how to use? This is such a great question. I think it comes back to learning who you are as an artist and authentically showing up as that individual in a space is all you can do. Like, I I don't know that I want to go to TikTok and only see musical theater students showcasing their auditions. I want to see, this is the same thing when when I'm in an audition space too. I want to meet a person. I don't want to meet a BFA graduate like I want to meet a human first and I think that's the same thing when you're creating digital content um that's the most important thing we're we're in the business of storytelling and I want to be a storyteller with people I like um and I will say to speak to I just had a conversation with another I had coffee with another person on TikTok earlier this morning and um we did point out that like there is a reasonableness standard like because of the size of the audience sometimes people do get inundated with communication so if you do reach out to me and it takes me a little while to respond just know that I I I am not ignoring you (laughs) like that that is something that I feel like is important don't get discouraged just because if you reach out to someone they don't respond it's not about you probably it's about them something for students to remember. I love that. I love that. Can you talk about um, a little bit how the pandemic affected your producing, right? So uh, you're the produ- producer of the amazing Broadway musical Hades Town, And in my mind, you know, at that time, I thought, oh, I can't wait to see it. Um, things closed down. And then I thought, oh, I can't wait to see this on tour. And now it feels like, na- you know, 
back in the fall we, they they released the tour it's happening it's in neighborhoods everywhere currently in los angeles i believe as we speak um uh tell me how that affected your producing um i'm sure in many ways that i, I are even difficult to articulate yeah um so I think it's important to note, I'm one of the producers on Hades Town. There's a whole slew of humans that that helped to bring that show to, to life. I was obsessed with it since 2008 in the concept album. So I, I feel like I, ha I own, I have special ownership of it. Um, but yeah, so January of 2020, I actually left my day job. I was an associate producer at, um, the lead producer of Hades Town's office. Uh, and I left that gig to go out and hang my own shingle. And I was producing this fabulous drag event called Nubia. And it was March 8th and 9th. And like things were going well. And then the world fell down around us. And like The Inheritance, which was one of my shows, it had to end early. It was a whole thing. Um, and then I kind of went into triage mode. I recognized that my actor friends had no way to make a living because we couldn't gather in space anymore. I could trans translate my skills into the digital space, into consulting, into doing a bunch of different things. So um, I kind of, you know, approached an organization that I knew had some money for digital programming. And I was like, let's do a reading series. I don't care who watches it. We just need to hire actors. Um, so that was part of it, kind of that like wild west mentality of just get triage. Um, that was part of the pandemic. And then a time to really kind of step back and say, I'm a human first. Like I actually needed to slow down in a lot of ways. Um, and as the world is kind of shaking off the, the pandemic dust, even though we are still very much in it. Um, I'm having to remind myself of that constantly. Like what about the time when Broadway was still, do I actually have nostalgia for? And how do I keep that stillness in some ways as I move forward? That's really interesting. I think um, one of the things I, I really want to talk to you about is, is because of the the reboot, if you will, because we took you know, a year off of, of Broadway um, and the conversations that the long overdue conversations that happen to be coinciding about social justice and representation and inclusion and equity. It feels like from my vantage point out here in California, we're in an extraordinary moment where we can rebuild the Broadway that we want it to be. And I've heard you talk about social justice and inclusion, which is something that Kikau and I talk about all the time on our podcast. But one of the things that is a little bit of a disconnect for me, being at the university, uh, in the academy, as they say, um, and, and being a tenured professor in California uh, that values a lot of the social justice concepts that, that are, are, are being discussed at the moment, I'm curious... I'm curious to have a conversation with you about if what I am teaching my students at the university level is aligning with or matching what the industry is actually talking about. Because I see a lot of conversations. Here's one of those long-winded uh, answer uh, questions. Yeah, uh, I, 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 <laughs> I hear a lot of, you know, 
social media posts and 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 uh, backroom conversations about representation and inclusion, but then I'm I'm seeing and hearing about revivals and and new musicals that are continuing a problematic cycle, and I'm I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about your perspective uh, with regards to Broadway's social activism. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think it's important to uh, contextualize this question with the fact that unfortunately, we still exist within a capitalistic system where if we don't sell tickets, we're not gonna have a business. Like, like, so I'm operating as a business person and a social justice minded human. And those two things together are, they, they often come into conflict and there's often tension. So how do we move through that without fear? That is the question for me. And, and how do we take care of ourselves enough to not um, like shrivel in the face of that daunting task? Um, and I think a lot of folks I mean, listen, it's a grueling industry that does not make profit most of the time. You know, like between 15 and 20% of Broadway shows recoup their investment. That means that producers are making almost no money until that point. So everything is contextualized in like how to make a living. Aside from that, I feel as though there are two ways to approach this issue. One is from the outside, like blow the thing up, let's be radical, let's change the world, let's take down every producer that exists and replace them. And then there's the inside way, which is, all right, cool, I'm gonna be in these rooms and bring up questions that the people who are at the top might not be thinking about. Um, I have decided that just based on where my career is and where I have luckily found the privileged position to be in and recognizing that privilege is a number one, step number one, all of the privilege. I am going to move through my career working from the inside and championing those people working from the outside, which might be the musical theater professors in California saying, go for it. Like, take your pickaxe to the the man like um i think it takes both kinds and recognizing the context that we're in which is broadway is a business it is a troubled business that often the model doesn't work so there are a lot of double binds and catch 22s um but we're all trying to make it better at least well i can't say we're all a lot of us are working hard to make it better. I want to, to touch on this because I think this is something that a lot of musical theater programs specifically, or maybe not musical theater programs, um, but they're interested in producing new works. Um, here at University of the Arts, we have an amazing polyphone festival um, where we cultivate lots of new works and, and productions that might be a little bit more on the fringe that other festivals might not be interested in taking on. Um, giving them that support and then launching them into their next steps. Uh, in our model, students are able to participate in these. They get to, to potentially be even the first folks to, to sing the words on the page or, or sing the notes or read the words on the page. Um, 
So my question is this, um, you know, is, does that model work for you as a producer, right? Is it, does it, is it helpful? Do you see that as a, a, a way? And then um, sort of tangential to that, um, what do you look for when you're seeing a new work and saying, hey, I'm going to sign on to this one? These are great questions. And I feel like I'm biased because the show that I've been working on for five, six years at this point is, an, I don't know, an alum of the program at UART. So um, yeah, Cowboy Bob was developed through the Polyphone Festival. And we're actually going to the American Musical Theater Project at Northwestern this summer. So we're doing, we're doing the whole the whole circle. Um, and the reason it's helpful is because as a producer, it is a space for, for my creative team and for me to enter with safety. You know what I mean? And with, with really brilliant minds and talent that may approach the material differently, that have a fresh set of eyes. Mm -hmm. Musical theater development at a university level is incredibly helpful, especially if it's outside of New York. I know Pace has a really great program and I actually was a part of the visit um, that ended up going to Broadway. And I was there and this wonderful musical theater student was performing Claire Zakanasian in front of Cheetah Rivera. And I was like, bless this woman for doing this. I was like, I can't imagine being in her position. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a wonderful opportunity. And then what I look for in work, um, you know, that's going to be different for every producer. For me, I, my personal aesthetic is something that is overtly entertaining. I'm not looking for the next Brechtian musical. Like, I, I mean, it can have Brechtian <laughs> elements, but I don't need a sparse, like, I want entertainment value because that is key in doing the social justice-minded work that I want to do. I want mm -hmm. to invite my family from rural South Carolina to see my show, and Hadestown is a perfect example of this. They are inherently drawn in by the entertainment value, by the musicality, by the flow of the storytelling, and then they leave and there's a morsel left behind that they're going to sit and think about, or it might come back up in five to 10 years, who knows? But like, there is a question presented that that shifts um, that could shift someone's view of the world, of where they sit in the world, of their experience of the world. That showcases someone's humanity. That is not the prevailing understanding of humanity in certain cases. Like that is that is my criteria for a show that I want to be a part of. Inherently entertaining with some social justice minded um, question just underneath that, that entertaining uh, surface. Can you tell us a little bit more about Cowboy Bob? And I mean, you, you mentioned that it, it had a, a workshop at UArts and that you're going to, to Northwestern. I mean, how much can you talk about it at this point? Can oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we're going. So it's um, a show that's created by um, a wonderful trio of women artists, Molly Beach Murphy, Annie Tip and Gina Phillips, um, they began this musical, I'm calling it like, uh, it's like if Honky Tonk met Riot Girl Rock. Um, so it's it's a punk rock story. It's uh, the story of Peggy Jo Tallis, who was a bank robber in Dallas in the 90s. Um, she dressed as a man and robbed banks. She had a 10 gallon hat and a mustache and wasn't caught for a decade. Um, so it's her story and how, and a, a fictionalized version of it, 
uh, and how she intersects with a Chili's waitress who's looking to escape her circumstances. So it's a modern Western uh, about being a woman in a tight spot and how we escape our given circumstances um, with like the coolest soundtrack in the world. Uh, and we are going to the Alley Theater in Houston in March of 2023. And then um, we'll see from there, but stay tuned. It's going to be exciting. That sounds so exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's also interesting, um, you know, when you're presenting new works, I've directed some, I've choreographed some, um, and sometimes you just don't know where things are gonna go, right? I, it's like my favorite part about it. I love, uh, my favorite binders are the ones with multiple colored pages um, from from change one to change 100. Um, and and then to sit in the audience and and hear and watch and be in the middle of responses, that just are unusual or different or might make changes to the next day. Um, I'm curious how you uh, find yourself sitting in audiences when it's a new work like this, or, or even in Hadestown, where you get a chance to experience the piece from an audience point of view. Do you know what I've been thinking about so much recently? How much time it takes to develop a piece of musical theater and how you can start developing a, and you can start developing a piece and the world can have gone through a pandemic, gone through a national political upheaval by the time that gets to a stage. So for me, when I am looking at a piece, if I'm interested in producing it, there has to be some universal element that is timeless because our world moves so quickly with the internet and with all of our connections that there has to be some element of shared humanity in the musicals that I'm watching or else it's going to get you know blown away by the next trend or the next uh political upheaval you know like um so that's part of it and I when I'm sitting and taking in new work, I'm like, can this stand the test of time? Because if I'm in a developmental reading, it's still probably going to be five years <laughs> until it gets to the stage. Um, yeah, that's a, a key element for me. I'm curious to know, you know, uh, you, you have the shows that you're producing and, and, and I'm sure you have other producing friends. Do you find yourself um, seeing choices and decisions and things coming up and think, oh, like, that's an interesting choice. I would never do that. Or, you know, I don't know. Is there some sort of, I'm imagining there's just this magical club where all the producers hang out with each other and they're like, good thumbs up there. And like, a group chat. Down there. I, can it yeah, be like yeah. a group text chat? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm curious to know how you, how that interaction happens, if at all, when you see other producers successes and maybe not so successes. I mean, it's the same. I imagine it's the same as in the musical theater, like education field. We all talk like that. People hang out on the second floor of Sardis. Um, I, I do think that there is something to like my contemporaries are, are very close because it feels like we're respond. It, it, there's a generational response, right? To like what we are being handed <laughs> as an industry. Um, so it does feel like we're all asking a lot of the same questions and I think drawn to, to work that is social justice minded and, and trying to produce work that furthers those 
goals of increased access, trying to figure out business models that allow for that space. Um, like my contemporary Greg Noble is doing really good work with, with access, like slave play, you know, those blackout nights, the amount of work he had to do to get that to happen just from a ticketing perspective was massive. Um, and it was a really cool initiative that now we have precedent for. Um, but yeah, so there's no group chat. I mean, there was kind of during the pandemic, we would get together every week, a group of colleagues and I, but yeah, we're just all, we're just all hustling now. I'm curious, you know, uh, uh, when we release this episode, it's going to be pretty close to the Tony Awards and you have had the unique experience of winning two. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that Hades town in particular when when it did so well at the Tony Awards I mean the director's speech is legendary I like show it in my class right so um what what was that experience like it's so strange to judge art through the lens of an award show um and I think any producer has to acknowledge that and acknowledge the human desire to win and acknowledge the fact that a Tony Award is the best piece of marketing you can have. Um, I think that Hades Town would have a very different path if we hadn't won those Tonys. Um, so I'm very grateful, and I think you have to you have to take awards with a grain of salt, right? Like I was proud of of that show, regardless. I mean, I'm incredibly proud of The Inheritance. And it, is, it wasn't running when it won the Tony Award. Um, so, you know, I think Tony Awards are great. Producing great art is better. <laughs> like, um, and, and to be quite frank, the privilege of winning those two Tony Awards also means that I can leverage my platform in a different way um, and being aware that that is a privilege um, and, and being honest and open about that feels important. So exciting. I feel like... Um... You know, it's as we're talking about these Tony Awards, I'm also thinking of as as of our recording, a show like Mrs. Doubtfire closing or announcing its its end. Um, and so I, I, I'm curious to that decision making to even. Uh, and maybe it wasn't decided for the inheritance. Maybe it was the pandemic that shut that down. But but when a show comes to its end, um, can you just share a little bit about what that what that is, that decision to do that, the, not necessarily, yeah, go for it. It's a horrendous decision. Um, and it is all economics. At a certain point, it becomes, you know, as a producer, I'm fiduciarily responsible for my investors' funds that they have invested in the show. And at a certain point, it becomes irresponsible to continue running a show at a loss. Um, there is, uh, you know, like, for instance, I imagine, I'm not on the Doubtfire team, but if they had been nominated for more Tonys, it would have been fiduciarily responsible for them to keep running to see if they won, because then they could have made up for lost time, made up for lost cash. Um, so those are all of the decisions that go into, you know, closing a show. Um, it's, it is a horrible, 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 horrible decision to make. Um, I have never been the the one to make the decision. I've been a part of conversations, um, but yeah, it's, it is not fun. Thank you for that. Yeah. I just, I, I think people see 
these announcements, they make assumptions about how things go either way. So I love that the clarity of it's it's money. It really is money. It, and um, for folks like um, Ayanna Presley to uh, take uh, the colored girls play and, and sort of buy tickets and open up that space, regardless of its closing date, is inspiring to me. It's what everyone should be doing. We should be seeing and uh, interacting and supporting this work. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh. And also that production is beautiful. I saw it last weekend and it's it's really, really stunning. If, if you, your audience is going to be in New York, y'all should come see it before it closes. Shifting gears a little bit, you know, we, we are uh, musical theater educators talking about musical theater education and you have a unique perspective uh, being somebody who is hiring our students, uh, you know, after upon graduation, and I'm curious as as having that perspective, what do you see in um, the musical theater training that is being provided right now that is working, um, and then likewise, what could we be doing better? I think that there's a real spirit of um, uh, like an entrepreneurial spirit that's that's working right now, and I don't know if it's because folks are being trained with the assumption that they're going to create their own work or they're asked to produce their own work at school. I, I don't know what that is, but when I was in school, that was not the case. Um, I was just like flung to New York City and they, they were like, you'll figure it out. Um, the thing, the, the bone that I have to pick most is this bifurcation or this idea that there is a bifurcated nature between managers and artists. I want artists to graduate from school knowing that my goal is exactly the same as theirs. Like as a producer, my goal is to get a story told in the most responsible and beautiful way possible. And that is the exact same goal as an artist. And sometimes I have to make hard decisions, but that is at the service of the story and not, and, and this, I mean, I think most producers are similar in this way. Like we don't want to take jobs away from people. Like when a show closes, like we were just talking about, it's not fun for anybody. Um, and I feel like if folks were to graduate programs, knowing that we're all on the same page, um, I don't know, it would just be a less adversarial space. Um, yeah, yeah. Any I'm trying thoughts, to make the business model work. <laughs> any thoughts on how we could teach that or prepare the humans that we are teaching for that relationship? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why I came up with this curriculum that I was pitching around for a while and tried it out at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, which is where I'm from. Uh, I think that there's something to broadening curriculum to like creative leadership, not, not just your craft and your training, but how do we operate in the world as creative leaders? I also, I'm the product of a liberal arts education. Like I am, I am very of that, that mindset. Um, I believe that I use my religious studies minor just as much as I use my theater major. So, and I believe that my time studying abroad is like one of the most useful skills that I have. Um, so 
yeah, I think, I think just forming a whole person who knows their own value um, rather than a person that can solidly nail quintuple pirouettes, you know what I mean? Like I, obviously you have to have training and you have to know your craft. Um, but on top of that, you just have to be a human. Oh my gosh. This is like, I feel like I say that phrase every day. And, 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 and I mean it at so many different levels. Like when we're talking about um, auditions, let's say for prospective students, I'm like, be a human. We're talking about, a, you know, we're about to graduate this amazing class of, of seniors. And I'm, my message is like, keep humaning, right? Um, so I love, 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 love that message. Um, you know, we typically end each of our episodes with some recommendations from our guests, uh, things that they might be interacting with in the world. Uh, they, in your case, projects you might be producing. Um, what, what, recommend, right, hmm, what recommendations would you have for our listeners, uh, educators, students? Uh, what, what is filling your cup? You know, I was asked this recently and I answered uh, the On Being podcast by Krista Tippett. Uh, it speaks to exactly what we're talking about. It's like, how do you human? Knowing who you are and what value you bring to the work that you do is something that I feel like is invaluable to students, to, to everybody. Um, so, and on being explores that and, and gets, it gets a little spiritual, but you know, we love a little spiritual moment. It's where I think that what we do as artists is also spiritual. So, um, so there's that. And then, uh, I recently started the artist's way for the first time. And I have morning pages I am like committed to them. I wake up 30 minutes earlier. I like put on my jazz. I like drink my coffee and do my morning pages. Change my life. I'm digging it hard. So I will give those two very concrete things. Um, yeah. I love it. I feel like I, I need to add, I, I've also done artist way, but like I've pretended like I've done the homework. I mean, it's just so bad. Cow, I didn't finish it. I did. I, I like, I have to go do it again. I went through, I went through a breakup in the middle of it, but like, I do think that I will finish it one day, but the morning pages have stuck. Yeah. I love, I just, I, I am, I am someone who loves a routine. I love a thing. So I, I, I might rewind back to that. That's awesome. Thank yes. you so much. Oh my much. gosh. Maybe we should do it together. <laughs> we should. Making uh, best friends uh, right here on Carefully Taught. Well, I can tell you one thing, Kikau, if you like routines, uh, don't have kids. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm picturing myself getting up early uh, to do morning pages with a two-year-old and a four-year-old who just get up whenever they want. No, no, no. Time, time is not on your side. Not right now. Give it a second. Give it a beat. <laughs> Everybody's journey is different. Everybody's journey is different. Well, this has been amazing. Um, I, I mean, Sally Kay, did you have anything else that you wanted to, you know, as we were talking offline before we were starting, you were, you were sharing about your passion and enthusiasm for education. Do you, did we cover everything that you had hoped to cover? Was there anything else yeah, that you thought I about think sharing? So. If yeah. anybody wants to hire me, I'm around. Yeah, let me come teach for you. Uh, that's, yeah, I'm, and I am developing this creative leadership curriculum that um, I'm excited about, so. Amazing. Amazing. 
just because we started with it, will you just share what your um, handle is? We'll include it in the information as well. But if someone is interested in following you on TikTok or Instagram or, or whatever, how could they reach out to you? I am at Sally.Cade, C-A-D-E, on TikTok. And I post there regularly. And you can go to my website, SallyCadeHolmes.com, uh, and find out all of the details. Great. Thank you so much. You are amazing. And I look forward to meeting you in person having a coffee and beginning our morning pages. Yes. <laughs> Thank y'all so much for having me. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com.